And open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. The first time that I visited China, I asked a friend if he had a car to drive. We were riding in a taxi at the time. And he said the company he worked for wouldn't allow the employees to drive because it was too dangerous. (laughs) And after three trips there, I fully understand what he meant. They have lines on the road like we do. They just don't mean the same thing. (laughs) They're more like suggestions than rules more like guidelines than, uh, than hard and fast uh, laws. And, you know, the, the cars all basically go, uh, you know, the way they're supposed to go, although they, they'll, you know, it, if there's a gap, they just start pulling over, and the horn is used as an announcement of your uh, intention to move, and, and people are constantly honking. They aren't angry, and they don't seem to mind when people pull in and jump in and go around crazy. And it's just, it's just the way you do things. And, and if you're riding a scooter, all the rules are off. You know, the, in, most of the big cities have, you know, maybe like a 10-lane wide road and with these big turn lanes. And if you're here and you want to go back that way on a scooter, you just kind of make your way through and get where you want to go. If you need to go up the wrong way in the lane for a while, that's okay. Uh, because everybody understands you're just trying to get somewhere, so the rules really don't matter that much. Now, I know they have to get a driver's license, and I know they have to wait till they're 18. I, I learned that this last time, asked one of the uh, people who was driving us around, how old do you have to be to drive? And have to be 18, and, and so on. So I know they have a license, I know they have rules, I know they have lanes on the road, but none of it seems to matter. My friend who works over there all the time put it this way, everything in China is negotiable. <laughs> including God's truth. They know what God's word says on many things, and yet it's like, well, you know, maybe there's an easier way or a more convenient way. And so they don't follow God's truth, especially in regard to some of the things he said about the church and what the church ought to be. And yet as I turn from that direction and look back at the United States, I have to say, you know what? I think in the bigger, broader picture of the church... A lot of people approach God's word the same way. It's all negotiable. Unfortunately, God is not a fan of disorder. He's given us not only the outcomes he wants us to arrive at as a church, but he's given us the path to walk on, the, the lanes to drive in, if you will. And, and so it... it If we want God's outcome for our church, we need to understand his rules of how we ought to get there. And so we're going to spend a few weeks here at the beginning of a new ministry year asking the question, what is the church supposed to be? We all have concepts, and certainly out in the greater uh, world of our country, there are concepts in people's minds about what a church is or what a church should be. We want to take some time and just look at some of the things God says about the church, starting in Acts chapter 2, 
starting in verse 1. Now, just to give you the timeline, if, you've, if you're not familiar, Jesus died, was buried, rose again, went back to heaven. And then Acts chapter 2 happens approximately 50 days, call it two months after those events. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord, all of the ones who had followed Jesus, the disciples, not just the 12, but probably 120 people. And suddenly, verse 2, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, in other words, real Jewish believers, not just in name only, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak from Galilee, and how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, people from Crete and Arabs. We heard them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your own old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the beginning of the church. If we fast forward to verse 40, we read this. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And drop down to verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church 
daily those who were being saved. This is the beginning of the church. Now, uh, the church exists in two aspects. Every single person who has ever believed in Christ is part of the church, that is capital C, the, the body of Christ. In that sense, we are united with all true believers in the world, wherever they might be. But the church also exists in the sense of a local part of that body of Christ, which is what we are. Initially, there was only one local church and one universal church. And it was right there, the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. (laughs) I'm sure that's in the new revised Dave Lunsford version somewhere. But when we ask, what is the church supposed to be? Right from the beginning, we see this. The church is supposed to be a curiosity. Now, it's not that we're supposed to be strange or weird or unique, although many times that is true of us. But what God did at the very beginning of the church is what God wants to do in an ongoing sense. God did a notable miracle to get people's attention. Now, I don't believe God is doing the same kind of miracles that he did then, but he is still doing miracles to get people's attention. Look at um, verse 8. How is it that we hear in our own language in which we were born? And then verse 12 They were all amazed and perplexed, saying, whatever could this mean? And then in verse 14, Peter gives the meaning. Peter gives the meaning. He stands up, he hears the questions, and he says, that's my cue to preach. That is what this verse, this principle is talking about that Peter wrote later. Sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. God's design for the church. Now, also I should give this other little foundational concept. The church is us, not this, right? This, is, this building is only a church when we're in it. When we're out of it, it's a building. Okay, we are the church. That's, that's probably not even quite accurate there, but we are the church. The church, you and I are to be a curiosity so that people might say, why are you so hopeful? Why are you so hopeful? And so I I think we could ask a question, when should our hope show, or how does our hope show? Well, our hope shows, it should show, it can show, when the diagnosis isn't very encouraging. We've had that this week right here. Jerry Ward got a diagnosis that's not encouraging. They basically said, you're going to get cancer again, and you're going to die from it. We just don't know where or when. 
or how. And if you wouldn't mind me saying, Jerry, I've seen the growth in your life to where now you're showing your hope. I'm not sure a few years ago if there would have been quite as much hope showing, but it's certainly showing now. How can a person be hopeful in the face of death? Well, what's the worst that can happen to me? I'm going to die and then I'm going to go to heaven. Isn't that something to be hopeful about? Yes, it is. Oh, certainly we lose a relationship now. We lose some joy now, but we have joy for all of eternity. Our hope should show when the job is lost. Because we know it isn't the end of my economic world. Yes, my world is going to change. But God is going to do something different. Something that I haven't expected. Our hope should show when somebody treats us poorly. When somebody treats us poorly. I had a chance to let my hope show a week ago. I wasn't quite as hopeful as I should be, but I wasn't as bad as I usually am. I got rear-ended. Just a little rear end. And you know, I think I have to say the, uh, whatever it is, the five mile an hour bumper worked. But it did leave some marks on my bumper. But I looked at that fella and I thought, he's a young guy with a family and a minivan. And I'm just guessing he can't afford this. And I just said, hey, that's fine. And I just walked away. And I was thinking, would it be really crass to stop and say, I'm walking away because Jesus loves you. Maybe not. Maybe I should have said that. Our hope should show when we have physical challenges, whatever they might be. Our hope should show when the road of life in front of us has bumps and potholes. Our hope should show when we show up at work in the morning. How do you show up at work? Oh, man, I got to work again. You might have a really terrible boss. I, I, I know they're out there. Okay. Could God make you hopeful in that situation? Could you be so hopeful that somebody would come to you and say, doesn't this guy get on your nerves? Oh, he absolutely does. Well, then why are you still smiling? Well, you got five minutes, I'd love to tell you about it. That's what God wants to do through us. God isn't doing miracles today like he did on the day of Pentecost, but he's still doing miracles. And that miracle is the miracle of transformation. He wants to show how a person can be hopeful in difficulty. You see, the context of this verse is difficulty. Look at this. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In other words, when you're treated bad, you don't respond in kind. But on the contrary, you give back blessing, knowing that you were called to this. Oh my goodness, 
we are called to return a blessing for evil. You know what that means to be called to something for God, by God? That means that he wants us to go through difficulty so that we can return a blessing and become an advertisement for Christ. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing, for he who would live, love life and see a good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you are followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And don't be afraid of their threats or be troubled, but instead of being afraid of their threats and troubled, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. See, God God knows we're going to go through difficulty. He wants us to go through difficulty so we can be a testimony for him. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the last 25 years, uh, maybe even 35 years, about how to attract people to church. An academic pursuit called the church growth movement started about 35 years ago, and they tried to say, "How, how can we get people to go to church? And they came up with a lot of different ideas, a chief among them, what we've come to call the, the seeker-driven church. And we, you know, we have to change this and change that and change the other and make everything real comfortable to people who come in. And, <clears throat> excuse me. and yet one statistic has never changed. Over 80% of the people who will come to church as a, as a guest, they're coming in to, you know, for the first time, so to speak, come because of a friend. That means, folks, that you are an advertisement for Christ, either a good one or a bad one, but you're an advertisement for Christ. Christ wants to use you as the church to reach people for himself. Oh, this is a great challenge. You know, as pastors, Sue and I are going to the pastors and wives retreat this week. We go every year get encouraged uh, by being hanging out with our colleagues and being preached to and worshiping together. And as pastors uh, over the years that we often talk about living in a fishbowl, that you know our lives are up for, for a greater scrutiny because essentially we've, we've set ourselves up as, as the leaders. The truth is, folks, we're all supposed to think and be aware that we're all living in a fishbowl. And it's what God wants. He wants you to be an advertisement for him. He wants people to look at your life and say, man, I wish my life could be more like that. That's what the church needs to be. Number two, church needs to be an incubator. An incubator. How many of you have an incubator? Yeah, I know some of you do. There's several uses of the word incubator. I looked it up on Wikipedia. 
the online encyclopedia that made all other encyclopedias obsolete. Incubator, a device used to grow and maintain microbiological cultures or cell cultures. No, that's not the one we're after. Incubator, a device for maintaining the eggs of birds or reptiles to allow them to hatch. That's the kind you have, right? There you go. That's not the kind we're after, though. Business incubator to, for startup businesses. No, that's not it either. Incubator neonatal, a device used to care for premature babies in a neonatal intensive care unit. That's getting closer to the incubator we need to be. We need to be an incubator like this. The church is to be a warm, nurturing environment that enables people to learn God's truth with a view to believing in Christ as Savior and growing up in Him as Lord. Um, If you have chicken eggs that you want to become chickens... They have to be kept warm, and I don't know about all the environmental factors, but I know an incubator is a big part of that. If you just set them on the ground and walk away, they don't turn into chickens. Okay. Did you know that people are like that in terms of coming to Christ? They can't do it on their own. Now, I'm not putting a limitation on God other than the fact that God has said we are supposed to be involved in the process of bringing people to Christ. We as Christians play a part in that. Listen to how the Apostle Paul acted, how he created an incubator, if you will, at Thessalonica when he went there to to reach those people. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, so that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. The image here of the church, of of the more mature Christians toward those who are coming to the Lord or who are new believers, is the image of of how parents care for children. And I would just offer a a simple example of that. Um, One of the great inventions of the 20th century is Velcro um, for both small children and old people. How do you tie your shoes? Just like this. There you go. And yet at some point, the child does need to learn to tie their shoes because not all shoes have Velcro and not the cool shoes Uh, You know, the cool shoes all have laces on them or whatever. And so the question I would ask you is this, those of you that are parents and have been down this road, how many times did you explain how to tie shoes before your child could tie shoes on their own? Oh, Lord, so many times you, you, you can't remember it. Okay? Now, here are some alternatives to patiently 
explaining to the child how to tie your shoes. You could say, why don't you just grow up? Ooh, y'all kind of went, ooh, that's ugly. Yeah. If you saw a parent doing that with a child trying to learn to tie their shoes, you'd, be, you'd, you'd really want to go over there and smack the parent, not the child. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so when you're teaching, you, you, you know, maybe you take your own shoe or theirs and you go, you know, and I don't know all the little things about the rabbit going through the hole and all that stuff. I can't remember that stuff, but do it like this, Johnny, you know, and you show him and lead him through it and you go over and over and over. And one day he does it on his own and you go, glory, only two more kids to go. And, Why don't you give up on them? Because you love them. Why don't you just shout at them, oh, grow up? Because you realize they are not capable. In fact, what's happening is they're becoming capable as you're leading them along. Those of us who know the Lord are to spiritually parent those who don't know the Lord And those who are new in the Lord, whether they are the children, we saw a few of them here today in Sunday school, or Awana, or the teens in the youth group, or adults sitting right next to you who who don't know the Lord or who are new in the Lord. It's our job to be an incubator. Uh, You know, probably the most challenging situation in our church regarding the incubator is our Awana club. You know, we had a kid almost light a garbage can on fire one night a year or two ago. Somebody just happened to come in right before he did it. That kid really needs to be in the incubator. He really, really needs the Lord And there's a real temptation to look at kids with that kind of behavior and say, they don't belong here. Oh my goodness, they don't belong here? Wow, they need to be here maybe more than some of the other kids do. Paul summarized this this attitude, I think, here at the end of 1 Thessalonians. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, that's a Christian who's rebellious, Comfort the faint-hearted, one that's struggling with their load. Uphold the weak, the new believer, and the hardest phrase of all, be patient with all. Wow, that's what the church is supposed to be. And, And right close to that is this, the church is supposed to be a hospital. Church is supposed to be a hospital. Do you remember this episode from the ministry of Christ? And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, apparently with the tax collector, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now be a little bit careful in understanding this passage because Jesus is using some sarcasm, okay? And and what he's saying here is the well equals those who are self-righteous. He's not saying there are some people in the world that are so righteous they don't need salvation. He's saying there are some people in the world who think they are so righteous that they don't need salvation. And in his day, most of those people were in a group called the Pharisees or another group called the Sadducees. And they came around in their robes, which met a certain definition in their group of being righteous, and they acted a certain way, and they did things at a certain time. And then there were other people who didn't act those ways. And chief among them were some called tax collectors and sinners. So these people were self-righteous. And they're saying, why, why is Jesus with these other people? The sick people are what we would call, what Jesus called, the obvious sinners. The word tax collector here really equates in our thinking to a traitor. Remember, Israel was dominated by the Roman government, which was dominating that whole piece of the world at that time. And the Romans would hire Jewish people to collect the tax. Now, you all know how much you enjoy paying tax to our own government. How much would you enjoy paying tax to, oh, let's say, Iran? If they ran a bunch of guys over here and said, hey, this guy, you've got to pay him tax or he's going to make trouble for you, you, you know, you know there would be a variety of responses, but some people would pay their tax, but they would hate the guy who was working for Iran. And that's what the tax collectors were on that day. Matthew was a tax collector for the Roman government. And they hated him in part because they could charge any percentage of profit they wanted to. So the Roman government said, collect 10 bucks, and they could charge 12 or 15 because they had a Roman soldier standing there to enforce it. And so they were known as people who were corrupt. And then the word sinner means there was some kind of public sin that was easily recognizable. Okay? Easily recognizable. Many people have understood this to maybe be a reference to prostitutes. Um, you know, uh, when, I, uh, when I first moved to Tukwila, uh, there was a uh, significant prostitution problem on Highway 99. And you could, and that was back in the day before uh, computer key cards in the hotels. And that we, you know, we're going back almost 30 years now. And you could drive down Highway 99 and see a woman walking on the side of the road, and she would have a hotel key and the tab on the back of it. She would flash the tab like that while she walked down the road. I mean, you can't get much more obvious than that. I had my son in the car, and the windows were down because it was summer, and we were driving to the, the hardware store up there. I don't know if it's still there, True Value or what it was. There was this hardware store. We're driving up there, and we slowed down to turn in, waiting for somebody else to turn in. And this was an area where the prostitutes walked. And when we slowed down, this woman leaned over and propositioned me through the car window with my son sitting right next to me. Okay, um, That's what you'd call obvious sin. 
You look at that person and go, oh, they're a sinner. Okay? I don't know what we would call an obvious sinner today, but in a, if an obvious sinner walked into our church, how would we respond? You know, maybe somebody who is of the Muslim persuasion, and, and some people have an extreme hatred for the Muslims, and maybe if a Muslim walked in here, would we treat them like a person who needs to be in the incubator? Maybe somebody comes in with a certain kind of clothing or a certain you know, kind of piercing or a certain kind of tattoo or whatever it is, and we think, oh, oh, why are they coming in here? Because this is the hospital and they're sick. And in this scenario, you're supposed to be the doctor. Self-righteous, on the other hand, are the people who look good. Do you know who the self-righteous are today? They're the people that we look at and we say, wow, they would make a great Christian. God help us when we say that, because what we're saying in reality is we're looking at them going, you know, they live a really good life, and if they would just believe in Jesus, they'd be an awesome Christian. (laughs) You know, the truth is the self-righteous make the worst Christians because they think they're pretty good. You know who the guy was who wrote 12 books of the New Testament? The guy who said, as we read this morning, oh man, I am not worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by God's grace I am what I am. To him be the glory. That's the guy who makes a great Christian because he knows how sinful he is. We don't need to make people feel sinful. That's not our job. We just need to nurture them to Christ. Speaking of a sinful woman and, and, and her attitude, do you remember this? Jesus answered and said to them, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman, the sinner. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. If we would be the church, we need to love sinners. You know, that's tough. It's tough in a variety of ways, but we have got to rise to that, to that challenge. Our target for ministry is people whose lives are not perfect. Now, again, that's not to be judgmental. That's not to, you know, we don't stand on the front step and say, come in, all you who are messed up. We will show you how to live No, no. Not unless we're saying, come in, all you that are messed up, 
we're messed up too, but God's working on us. That's the attitude we need to have. We need to be like Christ who came to seek and to save that which was lost, not that which already thought it was found. God wants us to be a curiosity, an incubator, a hospital, and next week we're going to talk about God wanting us to be a seminary. And we're going to talk about some other things that God wants us to be as well. Recently, I was talking with a friend in law enforcement about praying at public gatherings. And, you know, I'm asked to do that every so often, uh, you know, a memorial service or, or something like that. And he told me about an event where he was at that a chaplain got up. You know, it was, it was the moment in the program when a chaplain was supposed to pray. Let's just put it that way. He says, this chaplain got up, and he didn't pray. He didn't even say the name of God. And, and my friend was just shocked by that, and it was like, what in the world is going on? And I just said, yeah. I said, frankly, I'm not surprised by that. You know why I'm not surprised by that? Because in our society, spirituality, small s, is very popular, but God is not. In a very similar way, being a church is quite acceptable in our society, but not being a church according to God's plan. We've got to commit ourselves to God's plan knowing that if we do what God wants us to do, we will receive his joy, his peace, his blessing, and most of all, we will accomplish what he wants to accomplish through us. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I believe that, that we have been a church who has pursued your objectives I believe if we hadn't done that, we might not have lasted quite so long. Although there are certainly some old churches who have left your word. We want to be one of those churches who, who survives and thrives because we're living out your word. Because we're trying to be what you want us to be. Father, we would pray in this new ministry year that we would be more like what you want us to be, and that we would have more results and be more effective in helping people to see you and helping people to know you. Work in us, I pray in Christ's name, amen.